Well, good morning. Uh, would you please turn in your Bibles to Philemon or Philemon, depending uh, on your accent. Philemon, uh, it's uh, just towards the end of your Bible, just before Hebrews, the last letter of Paul, only one page. If you would pray with me one more time. Heavenly Father, our gracious God, make your word powerful, Lord, in our midst this morning. May your word go from the ears to the hearts and from our hearts to our lips and our lives. By the power of your spirit, cause us to behold Christ and to be increasingly conformed to him. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This morning, God's word addresses us about a subject, something that most all of us have experienced, but none of us like to talk about. Broken relationships. Broken relationships. Most of us in this room have felt the heartache, have shed the tears, have nursed the wounds, that come from broken relationships. Maybe in your case, it was a family member or a close friend or a fellow church member in some season of life long ago, and they wronged you, and you were deeply hurt, and that situation was never resolved. They moved away and moved on with their life, you were left behind picking up the pieces of your life. Maybe it hurts just to even think about them. Your heart feels heavy even as I am speaking right now. Or perhaps you weren't the one being hurt. Maybe you're here and you were the offending party. Maybe there's someone or some situation where you were in the wrong and you just turned away and ran. You did something wrong, you hurt someone, you never really resolved the matter, you perhaps were hindered, you didn't know how to go back to them, you didn't know if they would forgive you, you didn't know how to face them in your sin and your shame, oh, would they ever accept me again? And in your fear and in your shame, you just turned and ran and you moved on and you've kept moving on with your life. Maybe that's you. Or maybe, and I suspect this is very common, you found yourself trapped in the middle of a broken relationship. You've seen a relationship broken between two people whom you dearly loved, and you so desperately wanted to see that relationship restored, mended, but the situation was so complex complicated, and you felt so helpless, you didn't know what to do. And so you've just kept carrying on. You know, we try to carry on by covering things up, by burying things deep down, hiding our wounds, yet all we've really done is learned how to walk with a limp. And then a little bit of pressure applied at the right spot causes us to stumble 
and it triggers a host of painful memories that come flooding back to haunt us. Friends, can broken relationships ever be restored? What does reconciliation look like? Where do we begin? What do we do? Praise be to God, He doesn't leave us without instruction concerning such relationships. And today we're going to look at one of the most beautiful stories in the New Testament of reconciliation and the restoration of a relationship. It's in this little jewel of a letter. It's, it's a postcard, really, from Paul, just one page in our New Testaments. And it's a letter from the Apostle Paul to a Christian man, a member of the church in Colossae, named Philemon. And my prayer this morning, brothers and sisters, is that as we work through this letter, as we encounter each character, that we would find hope and comfort and the answers to our questions, but also that we would grow in a yearning to pursue gospel-shaped reconciliation. So I'm going to read the whole letter for us. See if you can pick up the threads of the story as I read. Let's follow along. Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church in your house, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers, because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you what to do, what is required, yet for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man, and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I preferred to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion but of your own accord. For this perhaps is why he was parted from you for a while that you might have him back forever, no longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand, I will repay it to say nothing of owing me even your own self. Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I say. At the same time, prepare a guest room for me, for I am hoping that through your prayers I will graciously be given to you. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends greetings to you, and so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. 
we're going to work through this letter as a story, working out the story that it tells, looking at three characters, three characters in the story. The first is Onesimus. Onesimus the offender. Now Onesimus is the one who shows up third, he shows up last in the letter, but he is the very purpose for this letter in the first place. You see he's in verse 10, Paul says, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. And it's very interesting, the meaning of his name, the meaning of the name Onesimus is useful. Onesimus was a slave. That's perhaps why he had this almost dehumanizing name, useful. Not just a slave, he was a slave who had run away. He was a runaway slave. He had ran away from his master and from his servitude. That's clear in verse 16 when Paul says, when you, he calls Philemon to receive him back in verse 16, he says, receive him no longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant. Onesimus was a runaway slave, and it was common in the ancient world for slaves to run away. They would try to escape their life of servitude by making, perhaps robbing something from their master and then running off. Then they would live a life in the shadows, in anonymity, no one knowing who they are. Often they found themselves in desperate situations, in ruin after running away, and then they became thugs or robbers and living in all kinds of evil. This was probably the case with Onesimus. It's not entirely clear how he had wronged Philemon. In all likelihood, he robbed him and just ran away. Uh, as one pastor puts it, it is likely that Onesimus was a lazy, ungrateful servant with a dishonest streak who saw his chance to make off with a big chunk of his master's savings and he did it leaving Philemon deeply hurt and in financial straits. It's very clear Paul says he was formerly useless. And you know, for a runaway slave, if they were caught and convicted, if they were known to be a runaway slave, the penalty in the Roman Empire was deadly. Most often, runaway slaves were put to death. And if they weren't put to death, that they found to be a runaway, they were often branded on the forehead with an iron brand so that the letter F was on their forehead, F for fugitivus, indicating this was a runaway. If they were found to have stolen something, again, if they weren't put to death, they were branded with the letters CF, Cave Furem, beware of thief. That would have been the consequence for this man if he had been caught. And he was running, probably found himself in desperation, but somehow, the hand of providence, the gracious plan of our sovereign God brings Onesimus into contact with none other than the Apostle Paul in his imprisonment. Perhaps they were in the same prison room. And Paul begins to share the gospel of grace with Onesimus. And Onesimus hears about the Christ who was crucified to save sinners like him. And God opens his eyes and gives him a new heart. 
and Onesimus was converted. And he became really dear to Paul now, like a, like a son. He became useful to Paul and helpful in the ministry, serving alongside Paul. Did you see that in verses 10 to 12? Paul says, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart. He was saved and he'd become so dear to the apostle. Paul recognizes that this is nothing but the sovereign hand of God. See verse 15. Paul says, for this perhaps is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever. What Paul is saying there is, even in the wrong that Onesimus did, even in his act of running away, even in this broken relationship, even in the pain of this situation, our sovereign God was working out his plan. In all of those circumstances, God was working behind the scenes to bring Onesimus into contact with Paul, to save Onesimus, to redeem him. God was working out his sovereign perfect plan for this brother's salvation. And when Onesimus was converted to faith in Christ, it changed everything everything for him. In Christ, Onesimus received a new life. He received a new family, a spiritual father in Paul and brothers and sisters in the church. He received a new identity, no longer useless, but now really useful. And he received a new destiny. Look again at verse 11. Look at what Paul says. This is the work of conversion in Onesimus' life. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. No longer a bondservant, verse 16, but more than a bondservant, a beloved brother. In Christ, the runaway slave had been forgiven, rescued, redeemed. His life, which was once ruined, and useless, had now by the grace of God become eternally useful so that Onesimus could say as we often sing, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer, gracious savior of my ruined life, my guilt, my cross upon your shoulders, in my place you suffered, bled and died, you rose, the death and grave are conquered, you broke the bonds of sin and shame. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer, may all my days bring glory to your name. But now, it was time to tie up some loose threads. It was time for this redeemed sinner to set things fully right in his life. It was time for Onesimus to pursue fully the fruits of of repentance and reconciliation. Which means it was time for him to go back to what he was running from. To go back to whom he was running from. Can you imagine the courage that it would have taken for Onesimus to do that, to return to his former master, whom he robbed, whom he ran away from? What if he was caught along the way. What if Philemon decided to press charges? What if he was not forgiven? He could be put to death. 
He could be branded on his forehead. It could have been much worse than it was before. He was risking a great cost, but the cost did not matter because now he had Christ. And you know, I've seen so many examples, beautiful examples of this in our congregation over the last several years in the life of this church. I remember uh, the first year, when we were first year, uh, I think of one email that we received where uh, a, me- a, a person who was coming into membership, a sister, had been found in serious sin. Her sin was revealed. And to fix that situation, it would be very costly for her. And I remember she wrote this email to us, some of us elders. She said in the email, I want to repent and make things right for God's glory. And then she spells out just how difficult the situation is and and the cost that she's going to face. Then she says, but I know that as a child of God, my complete dependence and priority should be on him, the Lord who promised to never leave us nor forsake us. Onesimus could go back because he knew that the Lord would never leave him nor forsake him. Maybe you're here this morning, dear friend, and you have been running. Aren't you tired? What are you running from? Who are you running from? Now, ultimately, if you search your heart and look deep within, what you'll find is you're not just running from an earthly situation. If you don't know Christ, you're running from God himself. And friend, I want to tell you in love, that road that you're on, that road that you're running down, it never ends. You will run and run and keep running until you're exhausted. And then you'll pluck yourself up and try to run a little more. And then you'll keep running until you're ruined. And that ruin will be both in this life and forever. But if you're here this morning, you're listening to these words, perhaps you're here Because in the gracious sovereign plan of a merciful God, the sovereign God of heaven and earth, put you on a path to run straight into him this morning. And you're here today, and that sovereign God who has been working behind the scenes all through your difficult, ruined life, all through the brokenness, that God has brought you here this morning. And he is calling you to run into his arms. That God who sent his own son, our Lord Jesus Christ, the son of God who took on flesh, He died on the cross. He took upon himself the penalty that we deserve. He poured out his blood. He rose from the dead. And he stands before you today saying, come. Run and find your refuge in me. So won't you run to him. Put your trust in him. He offers you today a new life. Forgiveness of sins a new family, a new identity, and the opportunity to truly make things right in your life. Won't you run to Jesus, dear friend? Maybe you're here today 
and you are a believer in Christ, like Onesimus, you trusted in Jesus, and yet you are the offender in a broken relationship. Maybe in your past somewhere, you wronged or hurt somebody, and you left things unresolved, and you've just tried to carry on and, and move on. Friends, think of what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5. He says, if you're offering your gift at, an altar, at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go, be reconciled to your brother, then come and offer your gift. Romans 12, 18, Paul gives this instruction. He says, if possible, insofar as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Friend, if you are in Christ and you have wronged someone somewhere in your life and the relationship is broken, don't just pick up and keep moving on with your life. You know, reconciliation is not a generic apology by text message that you just send them a message and say, I'm sorry for everything, and then you think it's done. No, brother or sister, you go personally to those whom you have wronged. You seek them out. You stand before them. You sit down with them and face them. Confess and acknowledge your sin. Be specific about how you wronged them. Allow them the opportunity to process their pain, to share the ways that you hurt them. Make sure that you ask them the question, is there anything else? You know, I've apologized for these things. Maybe there are other things I've done that I'm not even aware of ways that I wronged you. Is there anything else that I need to seek your forgiveness for? Let them share with you the answer to that question. And then look into their eyes and ask for forgiveness. Seek to reconcile insofar as it depends on you. You know, if you've received forgiveness before the divine judge and you know that all your sins have been paid for by the cross of Christ, if you've been reconciled with your Father in heaven, then dear friend, what do you have to lose? You've been freed from guilt and shame, and you can boldly seek forgiveness and reconciliation without fear from those whom you have wronged on earth. And that brings us to the next character in this story. This is the one whom Onesimus had wronged, the recipient of Paul's letter. His name was Philemon. So we met Onesimus the offender. Now we meet Philemon the forgiver. Look again at verses 1 and 2. Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church in your house. Paul is writing to this man. Usually the first name in the letter is the primary intended recipient, so Philemon is the recipient. Paul says he's a beloved fellow worker. Paul loves this man. He's a Christian. He's obviously a man of some means. He's a wealthy, generous Christian. The church meets in his house, the church in Colossae. He's a member of the church there. Uh, Paul names his family. Aphia is probably Philemon's wife. Archippus is probably Philemon's son. And when Paul says he's a fellow soldier, Philemon's son, Archippus, was probably in the ministry, in Christian ministry probably a pastor. Paul is writing to this beloved fellow worker. And not only that, this man 
had come to faith in Christ under the ministry of Paul. Verse 19, Paul says, you owe me your very self. So Paul had probably shared the gospel with Philemon. Philemon had come to faith through Paul's ministry. Paul had probably discipled this brother. And the portrait that we have of him in this letter is that his life was marked by the grace of God. Look at verse 5, Paul says, I hear of your love and of the faith that you have towards the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. Verse 7, Paul says, I've derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. Philemon was marked by faith in the Lord Jesus, by love for the Lord Jesus, and by love for the church. He was committed to the church, to his brothers and sisters. He refreshed their hearts with his love. And Paul, in writing this, was confident of Philemon's obedience. Verse 21, confident of your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I say. By all indications, this was a godly, faithful brother, a godly man. He'd been, at some point in his life, probably robbed and then forsaken by his slave. Yet, he himself had encountered forgiveness in the cross of Christ through the gospel. I'm sure Onesimus probably thinking about, uh, Philemon probably thinking about Onesimus resolved in his heart, I forgive him. I've been forgiven by Jesus. He was probably living his life in light of the cross. But now, he was about to face a new test. The former slave who had wronged him was about to return. That useless fellow who created so much trouble was coming back. And Philemon had to face him. Not only face him, Philemon had to receive him. Not just as a former slave, but as a brother, a beloved brother in the Lord. How do you think Philemon responded? How would you respond? Brother or sister, who's that person whom you have not forgiven? Even thinking about them brings back the heartbreak, the pain, what are those wounds that are festering deep within? Even your heart growing hardened. Where has your heart grown hardened and calloused? Now maybe in your heart you have resolved and you've said, I forgive. Yet you fear ever needing to see them again because you don't know how you would even react. I know how it feels. I know how hard it is. Believe me, I know. You know, some years ago, uh, there was a member of this church, and uh, she felt hurt by what someone else had done. And uh, one of the pastors was trying to counsel her through uh, forgiveness and ask, well, has that person come to you? Have, have they apologized? Have, have they sought your forgiveness? And uh, she said yes. And then... A pastor asked her, well, have you forgiven them? And her response was, 
I never forgive anybody. And he said, Pastor said, well, even in your family? He said, yeah, I just cut them off and I never talk to them ever again in my life. You know, that reminds me of the parable that Jesus told in Matthew chapter 18 about the unforgiving servant. And I'll do the currency conversion for you in dirhams. Uh, he, Jesus tells a story about a servant who owed his master, the king, 73 million dirhams. And he pleads desperately with the king to forgive his debt. And the king forgives him his debt of 73 million dirhams. And then that servant comes outside and finds his other fellow servant who owes him 100 dirhams. And he begins to choke his fellow servant and saying, pay me what you owe. And then the king finds out about it. And he says, throw this fellow in prison and don't let him out until he's paid every last penny. And Jesus says, so also will my heavenly father do to you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Dear brother, dear sister, consider the, consider the debt that you've been forgiven. Consider who you sinned against, who forgave your sin. The one who is perfect in righteousness, blazing in holiness, the creator God with whom is all authority in heaven and earth. If you are in Christ, then he has forgiven you. Consider how wickedly you had sinned against him. In more ways than you could think or count, you robbed him of his glory through evil thoughts, word, and deeds. You rebelled against him, broke the relationship, ran away. Consider what it cost for you to be forgiven. The price of your forgiveness was the Son of God, God's own Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, hanging naked and ashamed instead of you on a cross, taking upon himself the wrath of God that you deserve for your sin. That was the cost of our forgiveness. And Jesus paid it all. And if the wounds of Christ were sufficient to cover your sins and my sins, dear brother, dear sister, his wounds are more than sufficient to cover the sins of any brother or sister who has sinned against you and is now seeking your forgiveness. So if someone has sinned against you and they have come to you, they're coming to you in repentance, seeking forgiveness, seeking rec reconciliation, seeking to make things right, how would you respond? How do you respond? Well, first I say I think it's helpful to try and bring another brother or sister along into the situation. It's helpful to have another brother or sister there who can hold you accountable to extend forgiveness, who can make sure everything is said that needs to be said, who can arbitrate if things get difficult. When you're sitting with that person, share from your heart if there are things that you need resolution on. Share everything. Don't just make it quick and easy. Say, no, I also want to bring up this other thing that you did so that you don't think about it later. And then after hearing them out, look into their eyes and say those words. I forgive you. And reconcile. Hug. Pray. Weep. Restore the relationship. 
just as a practical aside, people have this question, well, what if they don't repent? What if they never seek reconciliation with me? And I know that's very common and that often happens. Well, I think God's Word gives us an example in that regard as well. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 14 to 16, Paul had this experience. He says, Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Beware of him yourself, for he strongly opposed our message. Verse 16, he says, At my first defense, no one came to stand by me. All deserted me. May it not be charged against them. So Paul leaves the unrepentant, unreconciled person in the hands of the Lord. Says the Lord will deal with them. And he even prays, may it not be charged against them. So what did Philemon do when Onesimus returned? Well, he forgave him. And they reconciled. How do we know? How do you know that, Pastor Aubrey? Well, I'll tell you how we know. How else do you think this letter would have gotten in your Bible? Paul wrote this letter to Philemon. Onesimus carried this letter over there. The church was involved. There was a beautiful reconciliation. And then they said, let's preserve this in the scriptures. This is the inspired word of God. And that's why you have it today. Not only that, but it's also probably the case, just as Paul was confident that Philemon did even more than what Paul asked. He probably set Onesimus free from his slavery and provided for him lavishly the rest of his life. We know that Onesimus likely went into Christian ministry because 50 years after this letter was written, we have another letter in the early church written from a pastor, a Christian leader named Ignatius, who's about to be martyred. And he writes letters to different churches, and he writes a letter to a church in Ephesus, and he names the pastor of that church. And in his letter, he says, Onesimus, a man of inexpressible love, who is also your pastor. I pray all of you will be like him. Praise God for his grace in making you worthy of such a pastor. What a glorious picture of reconciliation this letter gives us. And it wouldn't have been possible without the third character in this letter, its author. We've met Onesimus, the offender. We've met Philemon, the forgiver. Now we meet Paul, the peacemaker. Paul, the peacemaker. Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. You know, when we're stuck in the middle of a broken relationship and we have two dear friends whose relationship has been severed, would God make us peacemakers? And, and here the Lord graciously gives us a wonderful example of peacemaking for us to imitate in the Apostle Paul. See, Paul was old and in prison when writing this letter. He begins verse 1, a prisoner for Christ Jesus. Verse 9, I, Paul, an old man and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus. In the midst of his imprisonment, he's thinking about how can I reconcile these two brothers? Look at the priority that it has in his life. Notice the depth of his love for Onesimus. Verse 11, he says, I'm sending you my very heart. Verse 16, he says, he's a beloved brother, especially to me. Verse 17, he says, receive him as you would receive me. Not only did Paul deeply love Onesimus, he also deeply loved Philemon. Verse 1, he's our, he says, Philemon is my beloved fellow worker. Verse 7, I've derived, derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother. 
How does Paul respond to this complicated situation, broken relationship between two brothers whom he loves? Well, first let me tell you how Paul doesn't respond. He doesn't respond like most of us do when we're caught in the middle of these situations. Paul does not say, I'll just keep me out of it, I don't want to get involved. He does not say, well, Philemon is my friend, I don't want to introduce tension in that relationship. Onesimus is my friend, I don't want to introduce tension in this relationship, I'm just going to leave it be. Paul does not say, Onesimus, let's just move on. Let's just not talk about it. I know every now and then it might get awkward, but just leave it. Carry on. That's an old season. That's a different chapter of your life, and that's closed. Paul does not just continue on in ministry and friendship with Onesimus without resolving the matter. He's not just taking his meals and saying, ah, I'll just leave it be. If he were to do that, that would actually break his fellowship with Philemon. And when he sends Onesimus back, he doesn't say, oh, that's between you and him. I hope you can sort it out. No, Paul intervened. He entered the conflict. He inserted himself in the situation. What does he do? Well, first he persuades Onesimus to go back and he sends him back. Did you see that? Verse 12. I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart. Onesimus didn't just go back, he was sent by Paul. And he doesn't just say, go, go back, go ahead, reconcile, let's just patch up, all get along. No, he clearly identifies the wrongdoer. He clearly identifies that Onesimus is the one in the wrong, and then he helps him to do what's right. He even acknowledges that, verse 18, if he's wronged you at all, owes you anything, charge that to my account. And he wrote this beautiful letter for Onesimus to carry. He persuades Onesimus. He appeals to Philemon in love. He doesn't command Philemon, but instead he humbly and graciously appeals to him. Look at verses 8 and 9. Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you. This is Paul the Apostle. Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles who received his commission from the risen Christ himself with Christ's own authority, and he doesn't command the brother, he gently, lovingly pastors him and appeals to him. You know, Paul could have just kept Onesimus with him, because Onesimus was useful in the ministry, and he could have written Philemon a letter and said, Philemon, Onesimus has repented, he's come to faith in Christ, it's all good, he is sorry for what he did, I'm keeping him here because he's so useful to me in ministry, uh, I, I'm sure you're okay with that, God bless you. No, he doesn't do that. Verses 13 and 14, I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel, but I prefer to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion but out of your own accord. He gives Philemon the opportunity to make things right. He respects and honors Philemon. Verse 17, he says, if you consider me your partner, that means if you have fellowship with me, Philemon, receive him as you would receive me. Because you have fellowship with me, and I have fellowship with him, which means you have fellowship in Christ with one another. Receive him. Look at the appeal, so gentle, so loving, verse 20. Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. 
He persuades Onesimus. He appeals to Philemon. He points to the fruit of the gospel in Philemon's life. Look at verses 4 and 5. I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. Verse 7, I've derived so much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because of the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. He prays for Philemon. In verse 6, he prays, I pray, pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. In other words, Paul is praying, I pray that the fellowship that we share in Christ because of our faith would just be put on display. And every good thing that Christ has put in us, that it would be evident to all. By the way, that's such a great way to encourage others, to share with your brothers and sisters evidences of grace that you see in their life. May I encourage you, after the service today, find some brother or sister, maybe even someone whom you don't know very well in this church, and just share with them how you see God's grace at work in them in different ways. It's also good to let people know how you're praying for them. That's what Paul does here. He points to the fruit of the gospel in Philemon's life. He shares the work of the gospel in Onesimus' life. Verse 11, formerly he was useless, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me, eternally useful. He reminds Philemon that Onesimus has a new identity now. Receive him back forever. No longer as a bondservant, more than a bondservant, a beloved brother especially to me, how much more to you? Onesimus has a new identity now. He's your brother and mine. And here's something that you might have missed. Paul involves the church. Did you catch that? In verse 2, when he's writing the letter, he says, also the church in your house. When they received this, it was probably read in public before the whole church. And by the way, that's not because Paul just wants to place Philemon under some social pressure. You know, now the whole church knows you're accountable, you better do what I say. That's not the purpose of that. No, friends, it's because our faith binds us together with one another. These kinds of things are relevant in all of, to all of us. We're a family. There's no such thing as a private matter in biblical Christianity. No, the church is our family, and the church is the context in which our Christian life and discipleship and our pursuit of reconciliation must be worked out. Paul involves the church, and Paul inserts himself in the equation. Did you see that? Verses 17 and following, if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it to say nothing of owing me even your own self. Paul says, well, whatever he owes you, whatever he's done against you, charge that to me. And in doing that, who is Paul imitating? He's imitating the Lord Jesus Christ who took upon himself the penalty for our sin, who took upon himself to pay our debt. Brother or sister, are you caught in the middle of a broken relationship? Have you chosen to just let it be? Just don't talk about it. You don't see it as your responsibility to get involved, to help 
mend that relationship? When dealing with a friend who has done wrong, do you just opt to look, uh, look the other way and not bring it up? Or, you know, I'm just going to keep both these friendships. I'll have some awkwardness once in a while, but that's okay. Or do you put your comfort, your friendships, your very heart on the line to restore what has been broken? Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Oh, that the Lord would work in us by His Spirit and make us peacemakers, like Paul and like Christ. Now, you might be sitting here wondering why I've just kind of passed over a burning issue that runs throughout this letter. I'm going to address it now. And that is the fact that Onesimus was a slave. Philemon was his master. And Paul is sending the slave back to his master. And there's no explicit call here of Paul asking Philemon to liberate Onesimus. And in fact, if you read the New Testament, other places in Paul's writings like Ephesians, Colossians, he speaks about relationships between slaves and masters. And he talks about how Christian slaves and Christian masters within the church must relate to one another without really calling for liberation of slaves or the abolition of slavery. And so we are faced with a thorny issue. Does Paul and the New Testament endorse slavery? I'm going to give a four peace response to that question. And the first is this. First, we must recognize this is a modern question, not an ancient one. In the ancient world, the world that Paul lived in, slavery was just the reality in which people lived. It was ubiquitous in the social and economic world of the first century. In fact, scholars have estimated almost 30% of people in any given city were slaves. And in those conditions, with an authoritarian empire ruling, to overhaul slavery would be to overthrow society itself. That's the first piece. Second piece is that freedom or liberation of slaves in the ancient world was not always the most obvious good. It was not always the best possible path for that person. Slavery in those times was not like the kind of slavery we think of in the 17th, 18th century with the transatlantic slave trade where it was race-based, where people were stolen and enslaved against their will. No, this slavery was not race-based. There were slaves of many different races. Most often, this slavery was people voluntarily sending themselves into slavery. They had incurred huge debts. They had no means to support themselves or their families. They were completely insolvent and bankrupt. And so the, the way out was they would go to someone and say, take me as your slave. I'll serve you for life. Please just provide for me and my needs. That was what they did. And liberating them often would mean they would go into ruin. They would find no way to support themselves. They would find no means to repay their debts. And it was impossible for them to live. So it wasn't always the most obvious path to making their lives better, just to you know, abolish their slavery. And we also should know that the New Testament, the Old Testament very clearly condemns enslaving anybody. Slavery is never seen as a social good in the Bible. Third, we should note, Christianity at this time in Paul's day was a small, tiny movement in a massive, all-powerful empire. 
They had no power. The early Christians had, it's not a democracy. They had no power to influence the government or to engage in social action. It was a very different world. The Christians themselves were being thrown to the lions and being put to death. And then finally, like I said, slavery was the reality and a social evil in the world that they lived in. But the New Testament authors, the apostles, made it very clear that the cross of Christ and the gospel creates a new reality. The local church, where brothers and sisters in Christ live as family. And life in the church and the relationships that we have in the church are a complete polar opposite. It's an upside-down kingdom from the kingdom of this world. And it provides the entire world around us a glimpse into what heaven looks like. This is a new society in which people relate as brother and sister. And, and really, as you keep reading Christian history, you'll see that even though slavery was not abolished at the time of the New Testament, that the apostles didn't call for that, that the seeds, the seeds for the abolition of slavery were clearly in the New Testament, in letters like Philemon, which is why those who worked so hard and ensured the abolition of the slave trade were devout Christians, Bible-believing, conservative devout believers in Christ, men like William Wilberforce, men like Granville Sharp, men like Thomas Clarkson. You should read their biographies. It's beautiful. So while Paul's letter to Philemon doesn't call for the abolition of slavery, Paul does show us how to live with reconciled relationships between citizens of a heavenly kingdom in which no matter what our social status is, we are brothers and sisters. So we come back to the question at the beginning, don't we? How do we go back and fix broken relationships? How can we forgive? How do we make peace? How can we be peacemakers? How do we reconcile? And the answer is the gospel. It's because of Christ. It's because the Son of God Himself was treated like a slave to rescue runaway slaves like you and me and make us His own. It's because the one who was nailed to a cross by His accusers cried out, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And it's because by His blood, He has reconciled us to God, our Father, and he has created in himself, in the church, a community of reconciliation. And so by his grace, brothers and sisters, may we be those who have not only be reconciled, but who will also pursue reconciliation. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise and we thank you, dear God, for the reconciliation that we have in Christ through his blood. I pray that we would find through you the grace to go back to those situations that are broken and to bring the peace of Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.